Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter number 19. As you turn there, I do want to say thank you to all those that labored to make yesterday possible. And uh, there were a lot of people laboring and uh, making yesterday possible. And I just want you to know how much it means to me as a pastor. And uh, I enjoy the chili cook-off every year. Amen. And uh, you pray for those still suffering the consequences <laughs> of a day spent with chili yesterday. But uh, it is a blessing uh, to be able to gather as a church family. And I'm thankful for those that came and labored and made it possible. And uh, proud of our winners. Amen. We had a good group of winners this year. And uh, every year there's always slanderous accusations of bias and people fixing it and things like that. And it just can't be helped. When the stakes are that high, it is understandable that some people are going to have hurt feelings. But... We are thankful that, uh, listen, we run a clean operation around here, all right? And we're thankful for that opportunity. Genesis chapter number 19, and uh, we're going to be again reading sort of in the middle of a story here. Uh, in the Old Testament, this is the story of Lot, who is the nephew of Abraham. Uh, Lot's story is one of disobedience, it is one of compromise, it is one of bad decisions, and it is one of tragedy and devastation. Lot is a man that, when faced with the choice of, of whether to lead his family in a spiritual direction or in a temporal direction, he makes the decision to lead them in a temporal direction. Uh, Abraham and Lot were dwelling together, meaning occupying the same general area. And the Bible says that it got to the place that their their cattle was too much for the land. They couldn't dwell together anymore. Their servants were getting in fights. and So Abraham goes to Lot and says, listen, we need to separate. Uh, but he says, I'm going to defer to you. And that was a great act of, of kindness and graciousness on Abraham's part. He says, I'll let you choose which direction you want to go. And the Bible says that Lot looked around and, and he saw the well-watered plains of Jordan. And uh, it was a wonderful place to raise cattle. But the problem was it was right up next to, again, a place uh, called Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, there were five cities in that area. We're familiar mostly with Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, that was near to those well-watered plains. And so uh, Lot made a very deliberate decision that day. He chose that which was temporal above that which was spiritual. He sold the future of his family for that which would enrich him and, and would bless him in this life. And he decided to dwell in those well-watered plains. Well, it wasn't very long before we find Lot not just dwelling in the, in the plains, not just pitching his tent toward Sodom, but eventually he winds up moving into Sodom. And then he's not just living in Sodom, but he winds up rising in prominence to being one of the chief citizens of the land and the city of Sodom and, and winds up being, the Bible says, sitting in the gate of the city, meaning he had an official capacity there. And you know, that's a reminder that sin, sin always pulls us in. It don't ever let us go. It always pulls us in. You with me this morning? It always pulls us in. It don't ever hold lightly to us. It's always going to ask more of us. It's always going to want us to move a little closer and do a little more and dig a little deeper. And that's exactly what happened in the life of Lot. Well, we read in chapter 19 of sort of the spiritual ruin of his family. Uh, and God, in seeing the wickedness of these two cities, decides to destroy them. In fact, not just these two, but all five of the cities here in this plain. But before he does, he promises Abraham that if, uh, if there's just even a handful of righteous people in that city that he will not destroy it. And so God in His mercy sends two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to extract Lot and his family out of that place. Well, sadly, Lot doesn't even have a testimony with his son-in-laws anymore. Whenever he goes to them and says, God's going to destroy this city, the Bible says they laughed at it. Uh, they made fun of him. They poked fun at him. And 
so uh, the angels uh, convinced Lot to uh, bring his family, himself, his wife, and his two daughters, and to flee out of the city of Sodom before God destroys it. And that's sort of where we pick up in verse number 15. The Bible says, And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. While he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight. Now hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. He said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld. And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here, Lord. There's so many places that uh, we could have been had your grace and mercy not brought us here into this place. It's a precious place, Lord. It's a place where we hear the preaching of the Word of God. We sing the songs of Zion. We fellowship with others that know Christ in salvation and in grace. Lord, we're just thankful. What a good place this is that we found ourselves today. Lord, I thank you for those that have gathered here, Lord, and they've come with honest hearts, true intentions to hear your Word. And Lord, I believe in a situation like that, that things are poised for you to work in our lives. I pray that we would let you work in our hearts and lives, that we would listen carefully to the Word of God, that we would open our hearts and minds, be obedient unto you, Lord, and be honest and sincere as we hear the preached Word. Lord, as you work in our lives, may we yield unto you. If there's any that are lost under the sound of my voice, I pray you'd show them that their greatest need above all is Christ and grace, Lord, that they would above anything else in their life prioritize knowing Christ as their personal Savior, and that they would believe on Him today, ask Him to forgive them and save them and be eternally born again. Lord, and I pray if there are some that are wandering from You, Lord, they may have wandered far, they may have wandered just a few inches, Lord, but they are on a path, a trajectory, away from an intimate, close relationship with You. I pray that You would arrest their attention, Lord, that You would pull their heart back unto You through the preaching of the Word. And Lord, in all things that take place, I pray that Christ would be magnified and glorified. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
I want you to notice with me for a moment, verse number 20. Lot in uh, pleading with the angels to allow him to dwell in this little city by the name of Zoar makes an interesting statement about his perspective concerning this place. He says in verse number 20, Behold now, this city is near to flee unto. And he says this, It is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. And he asks it, Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. You know, when we think about Lot in this situation, we find a man that through the mercy of God is being dragged out of a place of his own destruction. The Bible says that when the angels were bringing him out in verse 16, that he lingered there. He did not want to leave his sin behind. And here in this moment, when his life is unraveling, when the people that he has known, which by the way include his son-in-laws and would soon include his wife, are perishing, this is a man that is obsessed with keeping his hold upon sin in his life. And in order to do that, he makes an interesting rationalization. He reasons with himself that though God is expelling from his life all these sins, Maybe he can come to this one little place, this one city called Zoar, for this reason. He says it is a little one. It is an insignificant one. Maybe I won't obey God fully. Maybe I'll go just to this small city. But surely it does not matter. After all, it is just a little place. Sort of reminds me of the way that you and I tend to be when God is dealing with us in our life. Have you ever tried to call God to the bargaining table of your own personal holiness? Have you ever asked God to come and and reason with you, not in you admitting and confessing your disobedience, but rather sort of a bargaining experience where you say, now Lord, I've given up this, I've given up this, I've given up this, I've done all that you've asked me to do, but can I not just cling to this one sin in my life? After all, it's just a little one. Something interesting about this place named Zoar is it was not always named Zoar. In fact, if we read our Bible carefully, I I think we can come away with the conclusion that Zoar was actually the name that was given to this city after this and in light of this event taking place. The Bible says back in Genesis chapter 14, when listing, cataloging those five cities, uh, that Zoar was a place that was called previously Bela, B-E-L-A, and that afterwards it was called Zoar. That's an interesting little note because the word Bela actually means destruction. This was a place that was defined and described as a doomed place destined for destruction. And yet in the eyes of Lot, though it was just as wicked as any other city, any of the other five in that plain, because it was a small city, he viewed it as being acceptable to go and dwell in that place. Let me make this statement to you today. I believe that as we read our Bible, I believe there are degrees of sin. I know people say, well, sin, all sin is sin. Well, that's true. All sin is sin. But that does not mean all sins are equal. The Bible makes it clear that the severity of our sin is dependent upon the nature of that sin. It's dependent upon the measure of light or truth that we have regarding that. In other words, God doesn't look at someone that commits a sin inadvertently or in ignorance and hold them to the same weight as someone that does it in the full knowledge and willfulness of being aware that it is wrong. I would say this, that uh, there's no question that there are big sins in the Bible. The Bible calls certain sins abominations, giving uh, extra strength and force to the idea of how wicked and corrupt they are. I want you to listen carefully this morning. It's true there are big sins, but listen carefully, there are no little sins. 
What I mean by that is there are sins that are grave in, in, in their impact and in their scope. There are sins that are quite serious in their nature. But if we use that as a reason to suggest, I found this is just human nature. Somehow everybody else's sins are always big and our sins are always little. But the reality is no sin that we actively engage in in our life is a small thing in the eyes of God. It may be small in our eyes, but it's not small in His eyes. And I would say that had Lot not chosen to indulge this little place, this little sin, his story would have wound up quite different than it did. I want you to notice a few thoughts with me this morning. First, notice verse number 16. The Bible says this, While he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters. Now notice this next statement. It's almost a parenthetical statement. It's almost like it's a statement from the, the narrator of the story. And certainly that narrator is the Holy Spirit. And he says this about that activity. The Lord being merciful unto him. Now in that moment, Lot didn't feel like God was being merciful. In that moment, God didn't feel like Lot was being good to him. But the Holy Ghost of God says that this occasion in Lot's life was not a measure of God's severity, but it was a measure of God's mercy. What is it about this event that speaks of the mercy of God? Or we could ask this question, how was the Lord being merciful unto Lot in this passage? And let me just go ahead and tell you what I'm getting at. How is it when the Holy Ghost of God deals with us about sin in our life, how is that an expression of the mercy of God? Let me tell you something, the most merciful thing God ever did for you is to not leave you alone. Uh, the worst thing God could have ever done for you would have been to have left you alone. But God in His mercy has dealt with us about sin. and It may not be a comfortable thing. It may not be something that we enjoy. It may not be pleasant to our palate. But God has dealt with us in His sin, not because He's mad, but because He's merciful. Because He loves us. How was He being merciful unto Lot? Well, look at verse number 15. I would say He was being merciful, number one, because He gave him a plain explanation of his situation. The Bible says, When the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here. Notice what he says. Lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. It's interesting that God associates the disobedience of the people of Sodom with the judgment that was soon coming. And he was saying to Lot, Lot, you don't have to die here in this place. God's not wanting to destroy sinners. He's wanting to destroy sin. If sinners persist in their sin, then they must be destroyed with their sin. But God's desire is not just to destroy men's lives. He, he does not have a, a bloodlust for suffering or for pain. I understand the militant atheist wants to sit back on their throne of lies and claim that God's some kind of mean character sitting up in heaven with a big old hammer just waiting to hit people over the head. Hey, listen, if those people had ever read a Bible, they wouldn't come away with that opinion. The, the God that I see in the, in the Bible is a God that loved mankind so much even in their lost condition that He sent His Son to die on the cross of Calvary. I'm talking about a God that was willing to bear the price of man's sins. I'm talking about a God that was willing to bear all of hell so that we could go free. That's the God of the Bible. Not some petty tyrant looking for an opportunity to uh, boast and exert His force and His will and His power. And even when we read this passage we find a hint of this in the angel's explanation, says God's getting ready to destroy the sin of this city. And if these sinners stay in this city, God will destroy the sinners of this city. But Lot, 
You don't have to stay in this place. You can leave this place. You can run from this. You can repent and turn to God and escape this destruction. He gave him a plain explanation of what he needed to do. Hey, listen, one of the great precious things the Holy Ghost of God does is He takes that divine finger and puts it right on the sin in our life. He doesn't leave us wondering. He doesn't leave us questioning. He puts it right on the sin in our life. He shows us what the results will be. He shows us the, the, the filthiness and the various nature of our sin. He gives us a plain explanation of what's wrong with the way that we're living. Now, the world tries to conflate and convolute that and confuse it. The world tries to use a lot of relative morality and, and situational ethics to make us think that somehow right is not right and wrong is not wrong. But I'm glad for the blessed Holy Ghost of God. I'm glad for the blessed Word of God that uh, minces no words, that pulls no punches, uh, that, uh, that does not draw in shades of gray, but rather instead shows us in our life what is wrong. I'd say He was being merciful because He gave Him a plain explanation. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, And while He lingered, the men laid hold upon His hand and upon the hand of His wife and upon the hand of His two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto Him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. I'd say this, he gave him a persistent escort out of the city. I'd say it's the mercy of God because what I would have done and what you would have probably done is said, all right, Lot, you want to stay in Sodom? Die in Sodom. We would have probably said, Lot, if I can't convince you, having seen all the things that have taken place, by the way, this is a man that had just offered to give his daughters up to abuse and death to satiate a, a vicious mob outside of the house. He had seen how ugly Sodom was. And I would have probably looked at him and said, Lot, if you want to stay in this mess, you stay in this mess. But I'm not going to stay here any longer. I'm going to leave. But I'm glad God's more gracious than I am. He grabs them by the hand and pulls them out of that place. And we'll learn here in a moment that God will not, uh, He will not superimpose over your free will. You have legitimate choice, but God will do everything He can to try to get your attention and show you that what you're doing is destructive. Hey, listen, man, I, I'm glad the old timers used to talk about uh, the Holy Ghost making the bed short, <laughs> making the, what was it, the bed hard and the, and the sheet short. Ken knows. He'll tell me here in a second. In other words, not, not permitting us any rest. The Holy Ghost of God, not, not letting us have peace of mind while sin's in our life. And you listen to me, child of God, don't you expect to get a moment of peace while sin's in your life? And don't you begrudge God for that. That's the mercy of God. Worst thing God could do is ever let you be comfortable in your own sin. He gave him a, a persistent escort. He didn't leave him in that place. He dragged him out. And it's interesting, the Bible says He set him without the city. When it says that he lingered there, I think the, the idea is that he, he kept looking behind him as his wife would later do and, and he just kept sort of putting it off and, and procrastinating and probably looking around at the beautiful house that he had, looking around at all the friends that he had. His focus was in the wrong place. And so these angels, they take him out of that environment, set him outside of the city so that he can finally see clearly the choice that he's making. You know, that's what the Holy Ghost does for us. That's what the Word of God does for us. God doesn't force any man to make any decision, but here's what He does. He finally gets us in a position that we can see things for what they really are. The devil would keep blinders over your eyes, but God will set you free. He'll open your eyes. He'll show you what sin really looks like and put you in a situation for the first time in Lot's life in a long time. He was really in a place he could see clearly and make a real decision. I wish I could tell you he made the right one, but he didn't. Look at verse number 17. We see another sign of God's mercy. It says, And it came to pass, 
when they had brought him forth, them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. You say, preacher, where's the mercy of God here? I would say he gave him a plain explanation of, uh, of what was wrong in his life. He gave him a persistent escort, put him in a place where he could really make a decision about his life. And then I would say this, he gave him a plan for escape. What's the difference between the advice in verse 15 and the advice in verse 17? The advice in verse 15 is how to get him out of the city. The advice in verse 17 is how to get him to safety. In other words, in verse 15, what he's doing is showing him that God's going to destroy Sodom. But in verse number 17, he's saying, now Lot, here is how you can ensure that you will not be destroyed along with this city. He gives him a few pieces of advice. Notice what it says. The first thing he says is escape for thy life. Take this seriously, Lot. Your life depends on it. Aren't you glad the Lord makes plain to us how serious sin is? That sin can destroy our life. He says this, look not behind thee. In other words, keep your focus ahead. Don't look backwards in regret or in wondering. Instead, keep your perspective forward. He says, neither stay thou in all the plain. He says, don't even stay in the vicinity of it. You know why some of us can't get away from certain sins? We're still living in the plain of it. We're still living in the vicinity of it. We've tried to get these things out of our life, but then we want to keep them at hand's reach, at arm's length. And all of a sudden we find it's too strong of a temptation. So here's what he says. He says, escape to the mountain. You know how you really get, get victory in your life? It's not just by willing sin out of your life. It's by replacing it in fellowship with the God of glory. Some of us don't ever get victory because we, we're living in that plane. We're living in that temporal realm where our life is obsessed and preoccupied with things of this life instead of escaping to the mountain, to a higher plane, to a greater elevation. Remember in the Old Testament, the mountain before the tabernacle was made and even sometimes afterwards was often the place that God chose to meet with His servants. And I believe God would have met with Lot had He been willing to go. God's trying to get us into a place not of emptiness where we have expelled and expunged all the sin from our life and not replaced it, but to displace it with a close, intimate walk with Him. We want victory like the Bible speaks about when the Lord Jesus tells the parable of the man that had the devil and it was cast out and uh, then he cleaned his house, he swept his house, he, he tidied up and the devil came back and found the place uh, cleaned and swept and empty and he said, boy, there's plenty of room in here. I could fit at least seven other demons in here and he went and got them and brought them and put them in that very place. Part of our problem, uh, we've allowed emptiness in our life by getting rid of sin. Hey, listen, I, I, I applaud you. I, I recommend that to you. But it's got to be replaced with a walk with God. Self-reformation is always a fruitless endeavor. He gave him a plan for escape. He didn't just say get out. He said, here's how you get out. I'm glad the Bible doesn't just merely stand back and say, look how wicked you are and not offer any solution for mankind's condition. That's what the law did in the Old Testament. The law would stand back and could condemn a man, could show a man how unrighteous he was. But whenever Christ came, He was made unto us righteousness. His righteousness is made available to us. A new way, a better way, the book of Hebrews says, was made for us a new covenant by His blood. And He showed us a way. He is the forerunner of all things. He's the author and He's the finisher of our faith. He gave us a plan to escape these sins. So we see how the Lord was being merciful unto Lot. But what was Lot's reply? Lot immediately begins to make excuses in verse number 18. We see, in fact, four things that he did that soothed his conscience and enabled him 
to continue in his disobedience. How did Lot excuse his request to stay in sin? Notice verse number 18. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Notice the first thing he did. We see his denial of disobedience is damage. Uh, the angel looks at him and says, you need to follow this plan. You need to get out of the plane. You need to get away from Sodom. God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other plain cities. You want to get as far away from it as you can because judgment is coming, Lot. And his reply was simply this, not so, my Lord. Now think about the force and power of what he's saying here. He's directly defying the revelation of God. You say, preacher, how could a person ever do such a thing? Well, that's what we have to do to stay in sin. The Bible makes abundantly clear that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now that's true in the lost person's life in the sense of the second death, eternal death, damnation, separation from God. But even in the life of the believer, uh, sin brings forth a spiritual death, not of, of condemnation of our soul, but it brings about a deadness in our walk with God to where there's misery and unhappiness and unproductivity in the way that we live. And so if we're going to live in sin, we have to convince ourselves that our sin somehow won't damage us. Somehow, I don't know how, but Lot convinced himself that he would be the exception to the rule. God's destroying untold, we don't know, certainly tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people that live in this plane. I don't know, but somehow Lot thought it won't get me. You know, that's what we do when we allow sin and retain sin in our life. We say it's destroyed other people, but somehow it will not destroy me. It's wrecked their lives, but it won't wreck my life. It's wrecked their marriage, but it won't wreck my marriage. It destroyed their family, but it won't destroy my family. It destroyed their children, but it won't destroy my children. I'm somehow above it. I'm somehow the exception. It won't happen to me. It's interesting. This is the same tactic. We know who was speaking this into his ears because it's the very same thing that Satan said to Eve in the garden. Whenever uh, Eve said we're not to uh, look, touch the fruit or look upon it, uh, we're not to taste of it, we're not to partake in it, in the day that we do, we're going to die. And the devil looked at him and said, In the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that ye shall become as gods, knowing good and evil. This is the very playbook of Satan to somehow convince Eve that God had lied to her. And in the same respect, somehow our flesh and the devil convinces us that the Word of God has lied to us, that history has lied to us, that the character and nature of God has lied to us and somehow will be the ones to escape. I notice that he, he denied disobedience as damage. Look at verse 19. He does something interesting here. He says, behold now. Now, let's not just treat the Word of God like it's just words to fill up space on a page. He tells the angel, look here. Behold now. Pay attention to this. Thy servant hath found grace in thy sight and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. Here's what he's saying. God wouldn't forgive me like this, pardon me like this, and rescue me like this, and be willing to destroy me if I stayed in Zoar. The fact that God has been merciful to me, the fact that God has been patient with me, is just evidence that I can keep on living in this sin, and God will permit it. And in fact, there's almost, I hate to say this, but there's almost a spirit in what Lot says where he's almost, it's like he's saying, hey, I left Sodom. What else do you want? God was merciful to me in leaving Sodom and I obeyed God and I've left Sodom. 
Surely God wouldn't begrudge me spending a little time in Zoar. I'd say, number one, there's a denial of disobedience and damage, but number two, there's a distortion of God's grace. He said, because God has forgiven me, surely God wouldn't begrudge me this one little sin. But to do so is to fundamentally misunderstand the grace of God. To understand the cost for that pardon, that grace, and that peace in our lives. To really experience the grace of God does not leave a person saying, God has forgiven me so I can keep living in sin because I know God will forgive me more. It's true, God will forgive you when you live in sin. God will forgive you if you repent and come to Him. But if you've tasted of the good grace of God, if someone will make you say, hey, God forgave me so I can live any old way I want, it's going to make you say, God forgave me so I'll live for Him and let my life be a light and a witness for Him. He said, God will always forgive me. And let me say, that is true. God will always forgive you. But I found that the effects of sin are not so forgiving. I found that the devil is not so forgiving. And I would suggest to you that if you were to ask Lot a chapter later whether or not sin had any price, he sadly would have to say, oh yes, there was a price to my decision and my choice. It is a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous thing when we say, well, God forgave me and God's a forgiving, gracious God so I can live any way that I want. You know, the danger is that God's going to have to disabuse you of that notion. He's going to have to then prove to you that He does care about sin in the life of His children. Don't ever forget, every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. He scourgeth every one of His own. If we live with that sort of insolent rebellion, that sort of prideful reliance on ourselves, we can rest assured God's going to have to prove us wrong in our thinking. He won't do it in anger. He won't do it in pettiness. He won't do it in bitterness. But He will do it in righteousness and in justice. We see a distortion of God's grace. And there's so many today, there's so many today in this world that live a life of depravity, of sin, of decadence, of disobedience. And they'll say things like, well, but grace. Hey, listen, thank God for the grace of God. But are you really thankful to God for the grace of God? If you're really thankful to God for the grace of God, you're going to live in grace and not disobedience. You're going to live in obedience to the truth of God's Word. I see his distortion of God's grace. Look at verse 19. He then says this. This is funny to me. He says, And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. We see his delusion of fleshly fear. He says, I can't go run up that mountain. There'd be bears up there. What are you, crazy? I've got to go to one of these plain cities. Now stop and think about what he's saying here. God has already said all five of these cities are marked for destruction. And he says, I can't go to the mountain because something might happen to me. Instead, I'll just stay in one of these cities that God's fixing to destroy. That's irrational. doesn't make any sense, right? If someone said that, you'd call that the ravings of a madman. You'd say that doesn't compute somehow. Why would he stay in a place of certain danger Because he's fearful of going to a place of speculative danger. Why would he stay here claiming that he cannot go to the mountain? Now, the correct answer would have been to say, if God said I need to be in the mountain, the mountain's where I need to be. But even beyond that, it's irrational for him to say, I can't go to the mountain. I've got to stay here in this place of certain destruction. You say, that's that's crazy, preacher. That's irrational. That's delusional. Yep. And that's how the flesh works. You know what the flesh convinces you of? The flesh convinces you that that sin that you lived without for many years of your life has now become such a part of you that if you get rid of it, if you repent of it, if you give it to God, you'll never be whole again. That only by clinging to that sin in your life can you find any peace, any happiness, any joy. And yet sin has never brought you any peace, never brought you any happiness, never brought you any joy. 
But the flesh will tell you, if you get rid of that thing, you're going to be miserable. I'd say this, child of God that's living in sin, how miserable is it to live the way you're living now? Has God ever made you miserable? <laughs> i got to be honest, I've made me miserable a lot. I've known other people that have made me miserable. But God has never made me miserable. No, listen, that's a delusion. That's a deception. That's, that, that's a lie. That's a net and a snare that's cast around a person through their flesh. Here's what's going to happen if you repent of your sin. You'll feel better over it. You'll have peace over it. You'll have victory through it. Your life will be more productive. Your relationship with God will be more vibrant. Everything in your life gets better when we get our heart and life right with Him. Somebody's going to say, well, preacher, some people might be mad. Well, yeah, people who have no right and claim to uh, keep you straddled and, and, and bonded in sin anyway. People that have no claim over your life may be disappointed. But I promise you this, what you'll get from God will be far better than what they're giving to you. I see his delusion of fleshly fear. Look at verse 20. He says, behold now, this city is near to flee unto. Isn't that a funny way to say that? Hey, it's convenient. <laughs> you know, this city is near to flee unto. And it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. I see the diminishing of sin's seriousness. He says, after all, it's not a big city like Sodom and Gomorrah. Can't I just dwell in this little place? I would say to you, you know, the language that God uses in this story is that the cry of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah had reached his ears and that's why he was destroying them. Zoar may have been smaller related to land area size. It may have been smaller related to population. But the wickedness of Zoar was just as severe as the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because God planned to destroy it. And the judge of all the earth, he does right. He's never done anything wrong. But here's what he did. He looked at the scope of this sin and said, it must not, it's not a big deal to me. So it must not be a big deal to God. Therein do men dethrone God and make themselves the master of their own life. When they imagine that God must feel the way they feel about things. That is humanism at its very purest. You say, preacher, how, what do we do instead? Instead, we take the truth, the word of God for it. Any person that lives in sin, they only ever are able to do it by suggesting that either their sin is not serious or somehow there is an excuse, a reasonable purpose for why they are engaging in it. That, by the way, is why we live in a society that has put such a currency upon victimhood. It, it permits people to say, well, my brokenness is because of the things that I've experienced, so I'm not responsible for my own actions anymore. This is part of a permissive society that we're living in. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are certainly real victims in this world. And there is certainly real brokenness in this world. But listen, I'm not interested in victims. I'm interested in victory. I'm not interested in brokenness. Hey, I'm, I'm interested in the blessedness of the cross of Calvary. If your perspective is, I've been hurt, I've been damaged, so I can live any old way that I want. Listen, my friend, God can set you free of that. God can give you a life that's worth living. Not one of being beaten down and trying to barter and trade upon your experiences, but instead having a life that's so wrapped up in the experience of Christ that there's no reason to weep or mourn, but only shout for victory. But if we're going to live in it, here's what we have to do. We have to suggest it's not a big deal. That's what he did. He diminished the seriousness of his sin. Did God think it was serious? Evidently, God did. Notice with me, not only Lot's excuse and to stay in sin, but notice what the result was of Lot's decision. Look at verse number 21. So there's three things that happen as a result of this. Probably a lot more than three, but for our message today, there's three things we'll notice. Look at verse 21. The Bible says that he, the angel, said unto him, 
See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Because he claimed it was a place of insignificance, because he had set his heart to go there, because he would hear nothing else, the angel finally says, fine, go and dwell in Zoar. So preacher, what's the devastating effect of of Lot's decision? What was the horrible thing that happened to Lot? I would say the first one, and it's easy to miss, is the permission of his sin. Now when I say permission, I don't mean the endorsement of it. I don't mean God was okay with it or God was pleased by it. And certainly what the angel is doing here is not condoning his sin. But what he is recognizing is that Lot has made the decision to go to Zoar and really him asking God's permission is a formality. The angel is realizing it's a waste of time to argue with Lot. He's going there either way. So let me give him some parting counsel. You know the worst thing about us craving, pleading, clinging to our sin? Sooner or later, God will let us have it. He will let us have it. You know, the Bible says about Israel of old, using that name that denoted the carnality of the nation, said that Ephraim is given to her idols. Then it says this, book of Hosea, it says, let her alone. That's in the series of a discourse where God talks about all the things He's going to do to Israel to try to get her attention. He talks about how He's going to corrupt her as a moth and He's going to ravage the city like a lion would and all these things and He's going to be like a thief that will break in and steal everything from And finally God, in desperation and disheartened discouragement, He says, Ephraim is given to idols, just let her alone. He finally says, I will go. In other words, you want that sin bad enough, eventually God's going to say, okay. You can have that sin. And you can have the consequences that it brings in your life. Hey, listen, you may be, you may be right now sitting there mad as you can be at the Holy Ghost for having the gall to deal with you about whatever that sacred cow is in your heart and life. But can I, can I just promise you this morning, you better get over yourself. That's the very mercy of God that He's dealing with you about that thing. The worst thing God could ever do is say, alright, go ahead and live in your sin and suffer the consequences of it. But if we persist in it sooner or later, hey, listen, the Bible said about the Lord Jesus that His Spirit would not strive. Hey, He, he would not, a, a bruised reed, He would not break. A, a smoking flax, He would not quench. He would not strive with men in the streets. The character of the Lord Jesus was He came, He preached truth, He presented it to men, but He would not strong arm them. He would not force them. They'd have to accept Him by will. That characteristic is the very characteristics of God. He won't make you live a holy life. But instead, He'll just show you the truth of how you're living. If you determine that you want to live in sin, eventually He'll allow it. I see the permission of His sin. Look at verse 24. The Bible says this, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. Verse 26 fascinates me. I can't answer everything about it. But I think there's an instructive truth here. It says, but his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now, there's a lot of things I can't explain about this. I don't know if it looked like a statue of Lot's wife. I don't know if it just looked like a pillar. I don't know if it was like table salt. Might have been that Himalayan pink stuff some of y'all eat. I don't know. There's a lot I don't understand about what's going on here. But if I read my Bible carefully and what it says about salt, I do think I find the instructive truth here. You know, the Lord Jesus, when talking about the witness and testimony of a Christian in the New Testament, He said this, if if salt has lost its savor, 
wherewith shall it be salted? In other words, if salt don't taste like salt, what's the point of salt? He says it is neither fit for the ground nor for the dung heap, but it's to be trodden underfoot by men. What he says is this, that if salt has lost its savor, it is not just something that is a neutral proposition. You can't just even throw it out on the ground. Salting the ground has been a military strategy for, for ages where they'd come through and, and destroy a place and then salt the ground so nothing would grow. It's literally, it's not just a neutral impact, it's a devastating, destructive impact. Now God turns Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. What does that say to us? Well, I think it says this, that whatever testimony of being a believer that Lot and his family had had, had been so wrecked and ruined by his time in sin, that a person couldn't look at Lot, couldn't look at his family and see anything about him that would suggest that they believe in the God of the Bible. That certainly is the testimony we have of Lot when he's in the city. The thing that they all seem shocked by is that Lot would have a problem with the way they were living. And yet God finds something redeemable out of the whole situation. He creates this pillar. He turns Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. Commentators suggest that for hundreds of years afterwards, there was still this pillar out in the desert that men could look and behold. She stood as a cautionary witness and testimony of what happens when a person lives in sin. That salt was not fit to be thrown on the ground. It wasn't fit for the dunghill. It wasn't fit for the table. The only thing it was fit for was to warn people of what sin does in a person's life. Can I tell you the great tragedy of, of so many Christians? We talk about being a trophy of grace. And I praise the Lord. There's people like the Apostle Paul that are, that are a trophy of grace. God saves them and changes their life so that men can look at him and say, if he could save Paul, he could save me. But I would say likewise, there are trophies of sin. People whose lives, the only benefit it serves is, is a cautionary tale to other people. They stand there like that pillar of salt so men can walk by and say, that's what happens when you linger in sin. I see the permission of his sin. I see the pollution of his spouse. His family became a devastating testimony to sin's destructive power. And that was all it was fit for for generations beyond. You know, we talk about generational sin in families, don't we? We talk about people who, you know, uh, somebody's a drunkard and and they, they grow up, they have alcohol in the home and their children become drunkards and their children beyond them become drunkards. Same thing with addiction, same thing with abuse. And, and these things happen sometimes in, in families. And we talk about the generational bondage, about how when a person is raised in that, statistically the, 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 the result and the impact, the likelihood that they'll be a part of it. But did it ever dawn on you that somewhere along those generations, someone made a deliberate decision to harbor sin in their life? Their family wasn't always that way. Somewhere along the line, somebody made the choice to flee to Zoar, to hang on to just a little sin, and it began a devastating path of destruction that laid waste family after family after family. I see the pollution of his spouse. And then finally look at verse 30 and I'm done. The Bible says, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. Let me just pause. This isn't my point, but can I just say this? Eventually, even Zoar gets old. You can run from this sin to that sin, but sooner or later, they're all going to get old. Eventually, he got tired of Zoar, and he feared to dwell there. And the Bible says he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. Now, you probably know the rest of the story. For time's sake, we won't unpack it, but you know how that his daughters believing or 
convincing themselves at least that the world was ending. I don't know why, but they, they, they believed that somehow the apocalypse had taken place. They surmise amongst themselves that they're the only humans that are left. And in order to repopulate the earth, they engage in a, in a perverse, incestuous relationship with their father. And from those interactions, two of the most most uh, hostile and, and aggressive enemies that Israel ever faces throughout their history are produced through the lineage uh, of those things. But, you know, the comment has often been made by, by preachers, and I'll say it along with them, hey, listen, the angel got Lot out of Sodom, but could not get Sodom out of Lot. Got him away from the cities, but couldn't get that which the cities had put in his heart and mind out of him. In other words, I would say we see the the permission of his sin, the pollution of his spouse, but we see the perversion of his soul. Now maybe you don't think it's fair to lay this at Lot's feet. The Bible says his daughters get him drunk so that they can engage in this. But certainly the daughters that did that are daughters he raised, and he raised them in Sodom. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that the time that Lot spent there every day, he vexed his righteous soul, witnessing their wrongdoing and their wickedness. And every single day he spent in Sodom took a toll on him. Every single day chipped away at the man that he once had been. Every single day left him changed from who he was the day before. You know, the great truth here is this. Sin never leaves us unchanged. You think you can keep being who you are now. You think you've got this sin under control. You think that it doesn't have control of you. You think you can hold on to this thing and somehow walk a fine line in your relationship with God. Here's the dirty secret that the devil don't want you to know. You don't have that sin. That sin has you. If it didn't, you would have got rid of it already. And you think you can stay in a static position with that. But that's not what's going to happen. Every day it will chip away at your testimony. Every day it will chip away at your consecration. Until soon, there's nothing left but what sin has destroyed in you. The Bible tells us that when Lot escaped, it was just Lot that escaped. Now I understand that means a righteous man. I understand it means a man that had been justified in the eyes of God. But it's been pointed out before, and I think there's a truth here, that it was pretty much just Lot. There wasn't much else. His son-in-laws weren't there. His wife wasn't there. And I would say this, evidently by the text, he lost his daughters too, as far as their reverence, respect, and relationship to him. This is a man that had been bankrupted by sin's effects. How did this happen to him? Well, it was just a little one. Wasn't a big sin. Wasn't a big city. It was just a little one. If we read carefully, I, I think we could clearly say that Lot's wife wouldn't have had the ability to look back towards Sodom and Gomorrah had he fled to the mountains immediately. Had he fled to the mountains immediately, his daughters wouldn't have been under the assumption when they feared to dwell in Zoar, it's probably because they believed that Zoar likewise was getting ready to be destroyed. Had Lot told them, God has, has declared He's going to destroy these five cities and these five cities will be devastated, He didn't communicate that truth to them. You know why He didn't tell them that? Because He couldn't convince them to go to Zoar if He had told them that. He had to just tell them He didn't know what was going on. doesn't know what's happening. There, there's devastation. There's destruction. And so then, they believe that that is the last of humankind in that little cave. They believe that Zoar was the last city ever to exist. Had he just been truthful, it would have avoided everything. But sin never lets us stay where we're at. It always pulls us in deeper and further. It's just a little one, but all it takes is a little sin in our life to bring destruction. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open, and you know you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You don't have to wait for anything to be said. You can meet the Lord in this altar right now. 
the Lord has dealt with you about some things in your life this morning. And you may say, well, preacher, they're not big things. But that is the very delusion and deception that the devil tries to sell us. It may not seem big to you, but if it's keeping you away from the Lord, if it's standing between you and God, if it's become an issue in your life, then it's big enough that God has noticed it. And it's big enough to bring about devastation in your life. Don't cling to that little sin. Instead, bring it to the Lord. Confess it, repent of it, and put it on the altar. Father, we love You. We thank You for this time. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.